values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm Barry Marks, and in for Mike. Uh, thanks for joining us here on KTAR. And uh, you would <laughs> joining us right now. I'm excited about this. It's Garrett Archer. Uh, he's the data, data analyst at uh, our friends over at ABC 15. And Garrett, thanks for joining us on the program. Hey, Barry. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I wanted to bring you on because I, I just read your analysis of the voting here in Arizona and in Maricopa County uh, specifically. And uh, I, I thought it was really interesting because there's a lot of folks out there now and on social media uh, who are saying that, you know, that the election was rigged or there was cheating or it was stolen or there was disenfranchisement and all these things. And I, I you know, I'm going to talk to you about this, but in in every category of voter, in Maricopa County, Republicans voted more than Democrats, including uh, vote by mail, early ballots by mail. More Republicans use that than Democrats, right? Correct. So even though um, Katie Hobbs uh, won the vote by mail uh, by about 11 points, uh, I believe it was, uh, statewide um, on, at 8 o'clock uh, when the first ballots dropped, what we really saw is once uh, Maricopa County sort of produced its uh, the number of registrants that actually voted, we can look at their party registration, and we found out about 480,000, 482,000 Republicans voted by mail uh, early. And 450,000 Democrats voted by mail. So uh, Republicans actually did have about a 30,000 vote advantage in the early vote in Maricopa County. So and that was a surprise to me and I think to most people because Katie Hobbs and, and other Democrats at the top of the ticket did so well in the mail-in balloting. I think we assume that a lot of Republicans didn't vote by mail. They came in to vote in person. But in reality, more Republicans than Democrats voted by mail, too. And Katie Hobbs still had that advantage. And, and we see that across the board. More Republicans uh, voted on Election Day. More Republicans voted uh, in early in-person balloting. Um, it, more Republicans voted in every category of voter. So let's figure out why or how. How did Katie Hobbs and the other Democrats win? So the best way of doing this uh, is it, one of the best ways of doing this is actually taking the governor's vote or the president's vote, depending on what your election is, and you you, fo- you fold it into the congressional districts because it, it sort of provides a high level of you know what that the make of that congressional district and uh, helps you kind of understand you know what is what is happening in certain regions of, of Arizona. And what was interesting about this analysis is that uh, say for example, David Schweikert won his district in east uh in northeast maricopa county um and he outperformed carrie lake who lost that district to katie hobbs by 5500 votes and we saw the same thing happen in pima with juan siscomani who outperformed uh uh, uh excuse me carrie lake by almost 10,000 votes and he obviously won that district he's going on to be a congressman lake lost that district to hobbs so i understand what you're saying i want to make sure the audience is hearing this. So, for example, David Schweikert, who had his own problems and, and still won in his congressional district, he had is a Republican. He had more votes overall and won. He won election, re-election. Yes. And, and Carrie yes. Lake, the Republican uh, nominee, who you would think would do at least as well as Schweikert would in that in that district, didn't. She did 5,400 votes worse and lost that district to Katie Hobbs. Yes. 
So, and, and there are, and these are two, these are districts. It, it, you got to remember, there are less votes overall cast in congressional districts than there are at the governor level. So it's sort of a, a, a double, it's, it's sort of a double right. whammy. Uh, not only did, you know, Carrie Lake underperform in these districts, which are both very Republican suburban districts, but, uh, she also, you know, lost that group of people that simply didn't vote in either of those elections, either the governor or the congressional district. So sort of a, a double punch. Now, what happened in the districts like, uh, Debbie Lesko and Gosar, they ran unopposed. Uh, How did did Carrie Lake perform Yeah, these were interesting. These were interesting because, as you said, they they ran unopposed, so uh, these were much wider, but there was still a a pretty big discrepancy of votes. Uh, Debbie Lesko, for example, or let's start with uh, Paul Gosar. Gosar overperformed Lake, who uh, I think most political observers out here would uh, say that Gosar and Lake are, are relatively politically similar, um, but Gosar still outperformed Lake by over 16,000 votes. Um, That's amazing. Debbie Lesko, yeah, Debbie Lesko overperformed Lake by 27,000 votes in the West Valley suburbs. Wow. So, I mean, Debbie Lesko, again, very conservative, I would say, I agree with you, kind of in the same line as as, uh, as Carrie Lake. So what is the answer to this? Is it Republicans didn't like Carrie Lake? Is it, What is the answer? Why did this happen? So we, what we did was uh, we, we looked at the we took the precincts just to you know we took all the voting precincts from 2018 and we fit, I worked with a guy from Uplift a group called Uplift named Sam Almi um, and we took the 2018 precincts and we we folded them in the votes from the 2018 precincts and folded them into 2022 so that we could do a like for like comparison and what we found is that. Um, the, there, there were 311 precincts that flipped from Doug Ducey in 2018 to Katie Hobbs in uh, 2022. Uh, and all of these precincts are within sort of the inner suburban zone of both uh, Tucson and Maricopa County. I mean, for example, most of these precincts are situated either in Chandler or North Phoenix, or two of the places where there was the largest turnover from Ducey, and then on the east side of of Tucson. So we're seeing a lot of defections in re- typically what, what are typically Republican-dominated suburbs. We saw a lot of defections to Hobbs from those areas. So Republicans who live in uh, live in the suburbs of Phoenix and uh, Scottsdale and, and Chandler and all these areas, and then down in Tucson, the Republicans that would normally vote for for Republicans, and in fact, voted for Ducey four years ago, and in fact, apparently yeah. voted for their congressional, their Republican, well. yeah. yeah, voted for their congressional candidate this year. Those Republicans did not vote for Carrie Lake. No, they they either let it they they left it blank or they voted for Hobbs because the precinct wow. went to Hobbs and these are inner precincts precincts that are close in just in Maricopa County these are precincts that are very close to the Loop 101 in North Phoenix and Chandler and just so we know like I said 311 precincts statewide that were flipped uh, Carrie Lake only flipped six precincts from uh, those that voted for Garcia in 2018 to her so six six precincts that voted for Democrat in 2018 she flipped six and Katie uh, Carrie. Excuse yeah. me, Katie Hobbs flipped three hundred eleven. Wow, uh, it's yeah. very it's very interesting. Yeah. And then and then, how did Carrie Lake do in comparison? I mean, w- was Blake Masters more or less popular than Carrie Lake? Oh, uh, Masters was was less popular yeah. than Lake. Um, there was a significant uh, ballot drop off with him as well. And, and we also saw this in the number of ballots uh, that excuse me, the undervote as well. Uh, so w- w- we see a similar number with with. Uh, 
masters. When, when you look at, say, sort of these suburbs, uh, what masters does, what that boat does is it just simply expands them out a little farther, thinking of it as a wave crashing, uh, you know, onto the shores. You know, the Republican suburbs are the shores and the, the, the Democrats are sort of the, the middle uh, urban Phoenix is sort of the sea. And then those waves crash and that sort of that yeah. foam is the the uh, uh, sort of the, the, the swing areas of Maricopa County. And what Masters does is it was just a, it was a larger wave. And so there were more uh, there were more precincts that flipped to, uh, to, to you know, away from Masters, you know, than. than uh, but but we see this gradient pattern everywhere, I guess is what I'm trying to say. All right, Garrett Archer, as always, uh, great information, great data, and I appreciate your analysis of it. Uh, you can check uh, Garrett. He's the data analyst at, at our friends at ABC 15. Uh, you can check him out on Twitter as well at Garrett Archer. And uh, thanks for taking a few minutes with us. Thanks, Barry. All right. There you have it, folks. There's the analysis. Uh, that was fascinating. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in the program uh, coming up as well. Garrett Archer, he gets he gets deep into the data and tells us what happened. And that uh, that answers a lot of questions. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk about the federal uh, government and the battle uh, over work and welfare. The Biden administration, uh, they're trying to expand the roles of welfare. We'll talk to you about it next and what some states are doing to push back. I'm Barry Markson. It's KTAR. <laughs> Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, welcome back, everybody. What's going on with this music? Very mellow. <laughs> I'm Barry Marks and in for Mike. Thanks for being here. Broomhead's back tomorrow. And um, boy, oh boy, I got to tell you, uh, the federal government is... Um, under the Biden administration, really doing what they can to, uh, and it's quiet, right? You don't even hear about this, but they're kind of quietly doing things to expand uh, welfare. Um, things that happened over COVID, um, and really the, the expansion happened during the Trump administration, but it was during COVID. So we had things uh, uh, during the uh, during COVID when Trump was in power and the Republicans were in power and it was 2020, and uh, they expanded the roles of people who go on food stamps. They expanded the roles of uh, for, for Medicaid, and what you're having now is, uh, and those things were basically set to kind of expire to sunset, as they say, uh, when the health emergency was over. And I didn't recognize that, but when when <laughs> when uh, Biden keeps, you know, or the Democrats keep saying the the the, the emergency is not over yet, this is why. Uh, because it lets them keep the food stamp rolls full. It lets them keep more medic people on Medicaid, uh, and and that's what they're trying to do. Some states are starting to push back on that. Georgia uh, just passed a law. They're trying to say, hey, we don't want all this expanded uh, Medicaid stuff anymore. Now, you have to make a decision. These are people who don't have health insurance. So having them on Medicaid, having people get some level of health insurance so that they can go to the doctor, they can do things before it turns into a full-on health emergency, that's not necessarily a bad thing. In many ways, that saves money. Money in the long run. So there's we can have a separate discussion about that. But what we're finding is uh, the Biden administration is doing what it can to keep uh, the to keep the uh, welfare rolls full. They want more people on Medicaid. It's millions and millions and millions more people. They want the food stamps, uh, more people on food stamps than uh, where they are, where they are. So in Georgia, um, it began back uh, when President Trump was in office and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services approved. They did a pilot program and expanded Medicaid eligibility uh, to to individuals making up to 100% of the federal poverty line um, 
while conditioning those benefits, this is what Georgia did, they conditioned those benefits on people trying to work or volunteer or going to school. Uh, the state's current Medicare Medicaid income limit is 35% of the poverty line. Now, I want you to understand what this means because it's a big difference, 35% of the poverty line or 100%. What do you think the poverty line is? It's $13,590. So it's a person of 100% of the poverty line is somebody who makes $13,600 a year. I mean, I'm I'm just speechless by that. I mean, how how does somebody even live on thirteen thousand dollars a year, right? I mean, can you? How do you in this in this day and age with inflation? How do you pay rent? How do you pay for? You can't do it. You can't do it. So to say that a person making a hundred percent of the poverty line shouldn't be getting food stamps and Medicaid, I'm a little hard pressed to say that's not a person who should be getting those benefits. I think they probably should. Georgia wants to shut that down further, but I think there should be a discussion. It should be a legislative issue. It should be something where we look up and say, okay, uh, the the emergency is over. Uh, COVID is over. Over. This thing where people were losing their jobs and not able to do things, that's over. Where, I mean, the unemployment rate's down to 3.5, 3.6%. What are we doing right now? And there should be a legislative decision on how many people or how we're going to direct food stamps and Medicaid going forward. And what we're finding is the Biden administration is trying to, and this doesn't surprise you, it's a Democratic administration, they're trying to expand uh, that much further. So the Families First Coronavirus Response Act of 2020. Again, this is the Republicans in charge. Increase federal Medicaid funding to states on the condition that they don't kick ineligible beneficiaries off the rolls, uh, including those who aren't working or trying to get work or going to school. They can't do it while the, emer- the, the emergency is in place, the health emergency. And that's why we keep hearing that the health emergency is still in place. So um, since February of 2020, when COVID started, Medicaid enrollment has gone up uh, 23 million people. It's an all-time high right now. 97 million people are on Medicaid. That's crazy. Almost 100 million people are on Medicaid. Um, and Medicaid, uh, it, by comparison from 2013 uh, until then, until 2020, Medicaid only grew by 14 million people. So it, it was a pretty a drastic increase. Um, some of it may be warranted. It's something that the legislature should look at, but it isn't something where we should just continue to keep inflated numbers there uh, because we can. The COVID excuse is gone. Uh, let's stop ta- Let's stop using it that way. Uh, coming up, Jeff Mund is here. He's in the KTR News Center, and he'll give you an update on everything going on. And when we get back, I'm going to talk to you about uh, Kirsten Cinema. Um, she is leaving. Uh, she's leaving her party. Could other people be joining her? May there be other politicians uh, who are going to go independent? And what does it mean for Arizona's 2024 Senate election? What are the Democrats going to do? I'm Barry Markson, sitting in for Broomhead. It's KTAR. and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, welcome to the Mike Broomhead Show. Mike's taking a day off, taking care of some business. I'm Barry Markson. Uh, he'll be back tomorrow, back in the big chair uh, tomorrow as we head uh, head to the holidays here, man. Christmas is coming up. Hanukkah is coming up. New Year's coming up. It's uh We've got, like, full-on winter here in the valley. You know, everything but the snow. A lot of rain. I thought it was going to stop raining, and then it kept raining last night. But it's... I, th- I haven't looked in a little bit. I thought it, I thought it was going to clear up. It's going to be nice on Wednesday. Cold, but nice. 
don't know. This is a little too chilly. I'm, I'm okay when it's cold. I like winter. I'm, I'm not. A, I'm not a big uh, you know 115 guy. Uh, so I like a little chill. I like uh, you know. I don't even get that cold, but I'll put a little sweater on. I like that, and uh, I like having a fire at night and all that. But I have to tell you, uh, when the high is around 55, that's a little cold. I, that, that's a little chilly. I'm okay. Maybe like 63, 65. I'm okay with that. Uh, so much great stuff coming up here in the Valley of the Sun as well. We've got the, we've got all the holidays coming up, uh, and then in January it's like boom, here we go. We've got. Um we got the Fiesta Bowl coming up uh, on uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, we have the Phoenix Open is coming up. We've got the Super Bowl here in the Valley. We have the Final Four here. This is, uh, it's amazing uh, how much Arizona and the Phoenix metropolitan area, the Valley of the Sun, uh, has become an absolute destination uh, and, and really one of the best known places, certainly for sports and other large events in the entire country. It's really an amazing thing and, and really great for the growth of the state. So uh, good for us. Give ourselves a little pat on the back. Uh, you've heard this story. Uh, Kirsten Cinema. she's the was the Democratic senator uh, here in Arizona. She was elected in 2018, and she was a Democrat. And it, it was an interesting when she switched over to be an independent uh, just recently. Um, it was interesting because this is somebody who was really far left, right? I mean, she was in Ralph Nader's party. She was a super environmentalist. I mean, she was a progressive before we knew what to call it. She was a super liberal Democrat. And when she was elected into the Congress, uh, she was in a district in kind of central Phoenix that – was what we would call a competitive kind of a split district. It could have gone to either Republican or Democrat, and she won it, uh, and she promised always to be uh, to be more independent and to act that way, and frankly, she kind of did. And then when she ran for Senate in 2018, I mean, if you remember Martha McSally and the Republicans, I mean, the attack ads that came out against Kirsten Cinema, showing her in that pink tutu from the early 2000s and uh, the, just where she was when she was much younger um, – really tried to paint her and used her own words and things she did to show who she was. Uh, But then as a senator, she has honestly been... Uh, she's a Democrat. I mean, let's not let's not pretend she's not a Democrat. She she voted 83 percent of the time with Biden. Um, but even when she was in office in, in 2018 to 20, when Trump was the president, um, Kirsten Sinema uh, voted uh, occasionally with Republicans. She this was amazing. In a, in a time when Republicans controlled the Senate, she was a freshman Democratic senator who had four bills that she wrote. And, and then she partnered with Republican senators and they passed. That's unheard of. And I went and met with her at one point just, to, just and, and she was talking about that. And that's the thing she was most proud of. She would she would tell us, and I was in a small group of people she was talking to, and she spoke not about the, the Democratic or the liberal thing she was doing. She spoke about that she reached across the aisle literally, that she was one of the few people in the Democratic caucus in the Senate who would go speak with Mitch McConnell or go speak with uh, other Republicans. And she found things out. She'd learn things and come back. But there was so little communication uh, between McConnell and Chuck Schumer or anybody else in the parties that she was one of the few people who really had that kind of communication. And I remember thinking at the time, number one, isn't that sad? I mean, I, I always remember hearing about not all that long ago, where in the Senate, especially Republicans, Democrats, liberals and conservatives, They'd work out in the gym together. They'd have lunch together. They, I mean, it was they could disagree but still be friendly. They could disagree and then find places where they did agree and work together. And it and it was odd or sad that, that not many were doing that anymore. But then my second thing, and big for her, was isn't it great that Arizona has a senator who's doing that? That Arizona has a senator who's looking for uh, to be a problem solver, to actually govern, to actually get something done. I think that's really great. Uh, apparently, a lot of Democrats don't. Her poll numbers in Arizona were were just tanking. Worse than 
than I realized uh, after she didn't vote for some of the uh, Build Back Better plan and, and, the, and a, the, to get rid of the filibuster, and uh, which I, I'm just constantly shocked that Democrats want to get rid of the filibuster. If you get rid of the filibuster now, will some things pass? Yeah, you're going to get some stuff fat passed, but the next time the Republicans take over the Senate and have the White House, guess what's going to happen? It's going to be all heck's going to break loose. Everything that progressives and Democrats hate is all going to become law. This is a good little stopgap stop here that actually makes the parties work together. And the fact is, uh, and you can you can credit Biden for this or not, but the fact is that we actually, the Senate did get things done, many, many important things done over the last two years in a bipartisan fashion. Uh, we had the CHIPS bill passed, which I have to tell you, what an amazing thing. Arizona, we are building the Taiwanese chip company that's already building one facility here and now is going to spend another $40 billion and build another chip facility out here in the desert. Wow. And that's happening because Republicans and Democrats voted for that bill. Um, there was some very limited gun control. Very, I mean, nothing nothing outrageous by any means, but just some limited gun control that was passed uh, together. Uh, there was, uh, you know, the infrastructure uh, that we've been trying to pass. An infrastructure bill has been trying to be passed in the law for 30 years. It actually got done uh, this year. I mean, these are things that Kirsten Cinema supported, that she helped guide through. I, I'm not here to, to do a commercial for her, but the point is she decided who she was going to be, and she actually does it. She actually governs. It's not just bumper sticker talk like we hear from most politicians now. Kirsten Sinema cinema actually gets it done. And maybe that's why she upsets everybody on both sides. I, I don't know. But I think a lot of folks in the middle are looking at her and saying, yeah, uh, I'd like more of that, please. So Kirsten Cinema says, I'm going to be an independent. And the question now in Arizona, uh, there's a couple questions nationwide. Number one, does Joe Manchin do that? Does Joe Manchin decide? And there's some reporting now that, that apparently that's something he's considering or something he's thought about. I mean, Joe Manchin is in such a Republican state. It's a state that voted plus 40 for Trump in 2020. I mean, He's the fact that he's a Democrat who wins office there is amazing. Uh, but in 2024, what is what does the Arizona Democratic Party do? What does the National Democratic Party do? Do they run uh, a qualified candidate against Kirsten Sinema who who will be an independent? Do they have a whole primary and pick somebody, whether it be Ruben Gallego or Greg Stanton or someone else who comes up? Um, any of whom would be a legitimate person running for Senate and would be a, 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 a good opponent, uh, or do the Democrats do what they do now with immigra- uh, with uh, independents who uh, caucus with them, uh, Bernie Sanders and Angus King in Maine, who are both independents but caucus with the Democrats? The Democrats don't run; they don't run a candidate from the party against them in their in their Senate races because they're, in essence, Democrats. They're listed as independents, but they caucus with the Democrats. They serve on the committees as Democrats. They, they do everything else, and the Democrats get the benefit of it when determining when whether or not there's leadership. And if you need the perfect picture of this right now, there's 51 Democrats in the in the Senate uh, and 49 uh, Republicans, and there's but really there's three independents. So if you take the independents out, guess what? There, isn't, there aren't 51 Democrats. There's 48 so there's 49 Republicans, 48 Democrats, and three independents. Those independents give the Democratic Party its majority. It makes Chuck Schumer the majority leader and gives him the control uh, over all of the committees. It's a huge difference. So for the Democrats, do they say, we're not going to oppose Kirsten Sinema? We're not going to put a candidate on and support a candidate there because if we do that, and I, think, I do think this is the reality, if they, if they put a candidate up, I think you're handing the seat back to the Republicans. As long as the Republicans don't run somebody completely 
you know, crazy. Um, I think that that would hand that Senate seat back to the Republicans and the Democrats don't want to do that. So it's going to be an interesting couple of years to see what they decide to do. There's obviously Democrats who want this uh, seat uh, in Ruben Gallego and Greg Stanton. Uh, look, there's a lot of ego here. I'll, I'll refer you very quickly to, you know, in Andy Biggs uh, congressional district. Um, it's a super Republican district. A Republican's going to win there. An independent ran against him this year in Clint Smith, a, a former Republican uh, who said it's Andy's too extreme and we're going to go against him. He went to the Democratic Party and said, don't run anybody against me. And the party said, OK, we're not going to run anybody against you. But one Democrat decided he his ego was so big he had to run. He ran. He got 40 percent of the vote. Clint Smith got six or seven percent uh, and lost handily. Um, and guess who won? Andy Biggs won. So that's what happens. Uh, the Democratic Party can't necessarily control everybody either. It's it's going to be interesting. Uh, our politics here in Arizona, definitely going to be interesting as we move forward. Um, coming up, medical schools. This is something that makes me crazy. Uh, we talk about affirmative action in college admissions and, and law school admissions. But in, in medical school admissions, where it's literally life and death, where it's these are our doctors, uh, should diversity be the focus of their admission policy? Uh we're going to talk about that next. Stay with us. I'm Barry Markson. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. All right. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Barry Markson in for Broomhead. Mike's back uh, in the big chair tomorrow. Thanks for joining us. Coming up at 11, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about these lawsuits. So we've got... Uh, we got three main lawsuits, uh, election lawsuits filed here in Arizona. We're going to break them down for you a little bit uh, and talk to you about uh, what we've learned in some new reporting about what was happening in the Cary Lake campaign behind the scenes. We'll have that for you as well right after the news uh, at 11. This is something, though, that I've been looking at for quite a while. It, it, it's, uh, look, a lot of colleges now, and it's been going on for a long time, really a couple of decades or more, uh, wanting to, uh, colleges want to improve the diversity of their student body. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. Uh, the, you know, it, it is more, it's beneficial for all of us, for everybody, uh, to be around uh, diverse uh, diverse people everywhere. I mean, it's you don't want to just be around people like you everywhere you go. It's, it's always good to learn and to meet new people and learn about their experiences. And um, I experienced that personally in law school, uh, where we had uh, folks from all sorts of uh, different uh, different persuasions. And uh, you learn a lot in a legal class or a constitutional class where somebody in the class will talk about how police pulled them over uh, because they were black or because, you know, they're, how they they had uh, their experiences in dealing with the legal system and other. It was very interesting. You learn a lot by having by hearing from other people's experiences. So I understand that. And there's also a benefit uh, from having a diverse population. That is, uh, you want diversity in, in your college-educated people and your lawyers and your doctors and everything. I, I get all that, and that makes sense. And certainly that should happen through opportunity. Um, but in medical school, it always worries me a little bit. And uh, because, look, when you're dealing with a doctor, you want a doctor who is the top doc, right? You want the best uh, man or woman uh, to who is really good in their field. That's who you want taking care of you. And what's happening now is uh, kind of makes you wonder if that's necessarily the case. Uh, the lawyers, the American Bar Association recently announced that it is going to take away the requirement 
uh, and uh, that you take an LSAT, uh, the the, the kind of like the SAT. It's called the LSAT. That's for if you want to get into law school. And they used to say that that uh, how you scored on the LSAT, there was a comparison to how well you would do your first year or two in law school. It didn't mean you would be a better lawyer or not, but it would. It was uh, there was a relationship between doing well on the test and and whether or not you would succeed in law school. Uh, well, the American Medical Association, uh, the American, I'm sorry, the American Association of Medical Colleges, um, they currently require that medical school admissions uh, teams include the MCAT uh, score among the variables they use when they're evaluating applicants. And now uh, there's some discussion uh, about whether the MCAT clearly favors white applicants uh, who have wealth and resources to, to help uh, uh, to get better scores on these tests, and if that's disadvantaging people from lower incomes who can't take uh, special courses and that sort of thing. Now, if that's the case, then we need to we need to help with that. I mean, the cost of taking the MCAT, uh, by the way, is three hundred thirty dollars. Uh, now that's a lot of money for somebody if you're living paycheck to paycheck and if you're trying to get your you know get through that. But let's figure out a way to get them that money so that they can help help take the uh, test and help them get the class if they need to. Uh, but to get rid of something that for decades uh, medical schools and doctors have determined was helpful to determine uh, whether or not a person was qualified for medical school. Um, is important. Uh, that that's not something that just should be thrown away uh, because we want a more diverse uh, medical school student body. Uh, it shouldn't be thrown away because we want more minority doctors. It's fine to have the goal that having more minority doctors is a good thing. I don't I don't have a problem with that. I think that is a good thing, but it should be open by opportunity. So that people can achieve going to medical school, not we're going to make sure we have a diverse and minority doctors by forcing them into medical schools. And here's my issue, even if they're not as qualified as other people. Not to say they're not qualified, but as qualified as other as other candidates. I, for me personally, I want our doctors to be the best of the best. I want the smartest people in that field in medicine. I want them going to medical school. Maybe I'm crazy, <laughs> but if I go to see a doctor anywhere, in any in anywhere, any hospital, any office, anywhere, I want to know that that doctor is the top top person. That that doctor is smart, understands what they do, and had the had the ability and the and the the brain power to become a doctor. And it's not just because we want more uh, minority doctors. We gave an opportunity, and this person was incredibly smart and achieved it. That's what I want. And we do that in other parts of our life all the time, right? I mean, I, I always joke around about this, but it isn't like the sons are calling me to be the starting forward on their team. You understand what I'm saying? There was no college looking at me and saying, we need to get uh, we need to get a couple of 5'11 uh, chubby white guys on the team to balance out the diversity of, of our squad. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, that's we, we look at things all the time by saying, who is the best? We have tryouts, right? We have who is the best. Those are the people that get to do this particular thing. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. All right, Jeff Munn standing by right now in the KTR News Center uh, with some breaking news.